Welcome to Inclusive Gathering Birmingham. My name is Danielle. Um, if you've never been with us before, we're an inclusive, affirming church that really believes in seeking justice for all and learning together all the time. Um, that's a key marker for us is we don't get everything right, but we always are open to learning and changing and growing together. Um, this has been a week where we've marked the anniversary, if you want to call it that, of the first lockdown. And if you're like me, you've spotted memories coming up in your Facebook feed and you think back to the person that you were a year ago and all the things that were ahead. And it's a bit of a bittersweet moment. Um, and we're gonna take a little bit of time later on to remember the year, to take some time to mourn together and to take some time to remember the hundreds of thousands of lives that have been lost over this last year. So um, for that, we're gonna be, um, you can print out a bit of mindfulness coloring to use for an exercise that we're going to do it's up on our website and we're going to share the link here you don't have to do that to participate but if you'd like to you can download that we'll also have what we call a love feast near the end of our time together and um, if you'd like to you can grab some food and some drink that we'll share together and we'll talk you through how to do that so whether you're gay or straight whatever your gender identity whatever your race race or ethnicity um, social class education theology, politics. We welcome you to just be here with us as you are. And um, we want to say thank you for kind of entrusting this time to us. Hi, I'm Peter and welcome again to this afternoon's gathering. And uh, we're going to be looking at, in a short moment, um, a story where uh, a lady used some very expensive perfume. And uh, for our question today, uh, we want to think about um, those smells that we come across. Obviously coronavirus has taken some of the smell from some people. Taste and smell is one of the things that some people have lost. Um, but what sense do you smell? What aromas do you have that remind you of certain things? Maybe they're good, bad, indifferent. Maybe it's um, that smell of uh, fish and chips as you walk along the seafront that really prompts you of a particular memory. Maybe there's a scent of someone's perfume that really stands out to you. I know there's one smell that will always stick in my mind and actually it's a little bit of a musty, nasty smell. Um, my old, my original boss who I used to work for used to give us um, a cash bonus every blue moon. Well, I could tell that he used to, where he used to store his money was in the mouldy cellar at work because when we opened the envelope and took out the, the hundred pounds that he'd use to give us cash, you could smell the mould and the must. And I could always do that distinct smell of that money um, always come off. But what other smells, what are the scents, uh, prompt your thinking and, and remind you or take you back to memories uh, of certain things? might be people, there might be things that you're mourning, there might be seasons of life that you're mourning and we want to give honor to all of those different kinds of kinds of grief today. So in a moment we're going to take a moment of silence together but first I'm going to read some words of a prayer and if you'd like to as I mentioned there's a, there's a mindfulness coloring sheet that we've made available that you can download or have printed and, and if it helps you as you're meditating on these words in the quiet you can color in the words or do that at a, at a later point. So I'll share, these, share this prayer and then we'll take a moment of silence together wherever we are. 
God, our merciful maker, you love the world you made and you want us to be whole and healthy, yet the world you made is suffering. The world you made is struggling. People have died and people are sick. Visit us with your mercy and make us whole. Wonder worker, in this year when everything changed and we felt worried and weary, when we waited and we wondered, you gave us a promise. Nothing can separate us from your love and nothing will be wasted. With you at work, life, light, love, and liberation always win. Amen. Hi, my name is Joel. The reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, one of the four stories in the Bible about Jesus' life and teaching. Naomi will be helping us consider this story and its implications in a moment. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your house, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said amongst themselves, Who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Hi everyone, I'm Naomi and I'm part of the leadership community here at Inclusive Gathering Birmingham. And I'll be sharing a talk with you today on the passage that we just heard from Luke. I will admit I struggle a little bit with Bible passages about so-called sinful or immoral women. We know very little about the woman in this passage, other than the fact that she was socially condemned, quite like a lot of the people that Jesus chose to spend his time with. 
In this story, we also see how the judgment those people received was passed on to Jesus, with Simon the Pharisee thinking that Jesus must not be a prophet or who he claims he is if he associates with such unclean people. I think it's really easy to look for the teaching in this passage to be about the woman and her sin. But what if that is just a reflection of our own expectations and prejudices? One of the papers that I read introducing a feminist perspective to this story by an author called Barbara Reed described it as a biblical Rorschach test. That's a test with the ink blots where you've got to try and find an image within the shape and it reveals something of how your brain works. The message that we get from this parable pivots on how we judge this woman and indeed how we judge all women. In most translations of this text, the title focuses on the sinfulness of the woman. And the same paper says, it's remarkable that no one has thought to point the reader to the way that Jesus perceives this woman by entitling it, A Woman Who Shows Great Love. Many translations also make the woman's forgiveness a consequence of her actions, which is not necessarily an accurate reflection of the original text. We see how Jesus invites Simon the Pharisee, and now us along with him, to examine the scene through a new perspective. And he does so by sharing the parable of the cancelled debt. I have always kind of naturally interchanged debt for sin in these stories, which I think is a consequence of growing up with substitutionary atonement theories um, and the belief that Jesus died for our debt to repay our debt for our sin. It would be simple enough to say that Jesus's message is that those who have sinned the most and accrued the most debt make the best Christians because they know how much trouble they would have been in if they hadn't been forgiven and are all the more grateful for it. But it's really interesting to me when Jesus uses money as an analogy or in the parables. Money has a really strong meaning for us. Money has power. But money is also a social construct or even contract. It's something people have created to mean something. We even decide the value of it ourselves. These days, we don't even really hold money anymore. It's, it's not really related to gold or silver like it used to be. Most of our money exists in theory uh, as electrical currents rather than in physical form. If the point that Jesus is trying to make, not that there ever is just one in a parable, was that sinners make better believers, he could have used any number of other images. I thought a replacement parable could have been if someone's being chased by one person and another was being chased by an army, who would be more grateful for the chase being called off? I'm really curious if there's anything in the specific choice of money for this parable. It's easy to see the larger sum of money being equivalent to worse or more sin than the smaller sum. And you'd therefore assume that the woman has been extra sinful. Simply because she is a woman, it's often assumed that her sins are sexual or that she is a prostitute. The text doesn't actually give any suggestion to that, although many people have tried to argue that that would be one explanation for how she can afford expensive perfume. 
Barbara Reed again points out in her essay on this passage that it's curious that although anonymous women who anoint Jesus in Mark 14 verses 3 to 9 and Matthew 26 verses 6 to 13 use the same alabaster flasks of very expensive ointments, commentators never conclude that they were prostitutes, nor is it is that same slur directed at Mary of Bethany, who anoints Jesus with a pound of costly ointment of pure nard in John 12 verses 1 to 8. Also, Jesus performs a similarly intimate gesture when he washes the disciples' feet in John 13 verses 1 to 20, but that is rarely seen as erotic. She also says that in contrast, Commentators never discuss what might be the type of sin that Simon Peter has committed when he says that he is a sinful man in the story of his call just before this in Luke chapter 5. She says in verse 47 of this passage, Jesus acknowledges that the woman's sin have been many and the writer of Luke hints that the whole city knows that this is true. Now, in a first century Galilean city, everyone would know everyone else's business. This woman need only have been ill, disabled or have contact with Gentiles to be considered a sinner by all the Jews in the city. A possible scenario is that the woman is employed in work that brings her into frequent contact with Gentiles, perhaps midwifery, or her work may be in one of the trades considered unclean. Everyone in the city would know her occupation and would consider her sinful for her association with things that are unclean. Simon, unaware of any prior contact between her and Jesus, remarks to himself that if Jesus were indeed a prophet, he too would know that she is a sinner. In fact, discussion of the woman and what she might have done completely distracts us from getting any other message from this encounter. When instead we pay attention to Simon, we see reflected back at us how we often want our religious figures to uphold our own cultural prejudices. He judged Jesus based on his judgments of the woman, which came from his own judgmental society. When Jesus asks, do you see this woman? I feel he is asking, do you see this woman in her wholeness or do you see what you want to see? Do you see her love and her faithfulness or do you see what your prejudice tells you to see? Do you see a woman who has done her best with the cards that have been dealt to her or do you see a stereotype? This analysis makes the choice of money even more intriguing for me. I was especially challenged when Paula Kuda came and joined us earlier in the year and she asked whether God or Jesus is always present as a character in the parables. With this parable, it's easy to cast them in the role of the moneylender who forgives. But when we consider the meaning of money and its creation by people as a tool within our society, I wonder if what the people in the parable are liberated from is not the burden of sin but the burden of judgment and expectation from an unfair society, a society that did not reflect kingdom values and the new social order that Jesus has come to proclaim. I wonder if the contrast between the woman's ability to show love for Jesus and Simon's ability to only judge 
is that Simon is still trapped in the version of life from which he gains considerable power, but that still restricts him from receiving the full truth and liberation of the gospel. The woman is condemned by the status quo, and she receives Jesus' message gladly. I don't believe this parable or encounter is meant to have the final say on sin, and we've been warned against taking the parables literally and to only mean one thing. But it raises interesting questions about judgment. In preparing this summer, in preparing this sermon, I couldn't separate myself from the stories we are currently surrounded by, especially concerning violence against women. I'm deeply troubled by the way the Bible presents women in some of the stories in both the Old and New Testaments. And this one is definitely up there. We clearly still have a really long way to go until we can live in a world where women can truly thrive. But I believe we can start by doing justice to the women whose stories we hear in the Bible. Preventing violence against women begins in the pulpits by not blaming Eve, by not blaming Tamar, by not blaming Delilah, by not blaming Bathsheba, by not shaming the bleeding woman, by not shaming the woman by the well by not shaming the woman who washed Jesus' feet. To finish, I want to share a quote from an African womanist theologian, Mercy Amba Adoyeye, who writes, Whatever is keeping subordination of women alive in the church cannot be the spirit of God. The church is intended to be the ecclesia of all people, across all social barriers. In the church, we expect to experience the reciprocity, mutual respect, support and protection of each person's freedom in continuum with our freedom as the children of promise. The Oxford English Dictionary defines scandal as an action or event causing general public outrage. When you Google it, you get these synonyms. Outrageous wrongdoing, immoral behavior, shocking incident. Queer people know a lot about scandal and the shame it breeds. We have long been cast as undignified, as morally outrageous. So hey, we've claimed the turf. You need me to be a scandal for your impoverished worldview? Well, honey, so be it. Michael Warner says that when queer people embrace scandal, We create an ethical vision for ourselves. The rule, he says, is this. Get over yourself, put a wig on before you judge, and the corollary is that you stand to learn the most from the people you think are beneath you. You know who preached a message just like this? Jesus. Jesus was scandalous on purpose. He lived in an occupied country. His people felt powerless and he needed them to see just how powerful they and their God really were. Everything about Christianity is scandalous. God shows up as a defenseless baby? That's just wrong. Rome's most shameful instrument of torture becomes a mechanism for salvation? Oh, come on! The entire thrust of the Christian message is supposed to make our eyes open as wide as they can go as we stammer, but, but that's not the way things are supposed to be. Both queers and Christians are called to look scandal in the eye and deny its power to control us. This is how we break the shackles of whatever shame we have known. 
This is how we affirm the dignity of every human being. This is one of the most important ways that we participate in building a better world for all of us. Amen. Hey, I'm Lizzie. And I'm Naomi. Each week when we meet together online, we share something we call the love feast. It's a way of expressing the sharing, belonging and friendship we have together as followers of Jesus. It's also a good way to share some of the sense of hospitality and welcome that sharing food together represents for us as a community when we meet together in person. There's nothing particularly special about the particular kind of food we share together. So grab whatever you like or have nearby. For example, I have a crumpet. What is on your crumpet? It's a jam crumpet. I hate jam. Oh. <laughs> and I have Fanta because I don't like jam. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we heard that reflection on scandal. Um, and it's true that Jesus did some pretty scandalous things in his time, including eating with people that he really shouldn't have. And that included Pharisees, that included dishonoured women, it included anyone and everyone, um, included five feeding of the 5,000? Was it 500 or 5,000? It was 5,000. 5,000. Um, yeah, Jesus expressed his love for his community through sharing food with them, um, and that's still what it represents for us. Um, and I, yeah, I'm reflecting on how we can embrace a little bit of that scandal um, and do some things that are a bit outrageous in, in showing love to our community as well in the next coming week. So let's pray about that together. Absolutely. God, thank you for the time we're able to share together each week. And I thank you for the community that that I have found, that we've found, and that others have found um, in Inclusive Gathering Birmingham. I pray that you continue to allow us to embrace the scandal um, that surrounds people that have been excluded from church. Um, and that people would come to know that actually that is a, a representation of your love and of your just never-ending inclusion. I really pray that we would take some of what we've learned this week out into the week um, and into our communities and into our, our workplaces, even if they're online for now, um, and that we'd really embrace the idea of putting ourselves out there in your name to show just radical love for the people around us. Thank you for the, the food that we're sharing in and, and also the food that we can give away to others. Um, and I pray that we would just continue to seek opportunities to serve each other this week. Amen. Amen. Enjoy. Now it's time to eat some food. Because we really care deeply about hospitality and eating together and we haven't been able to do that and we've actually not spent money on doing that as we normally would, we want to remember that by offering folks that are connected with our community some food to cook and eat together. So on Saturday evening, we're going to be having a shared meal where we're going to be cooking much of the same thing and sitting and eating together, albeit on Zoom. Um, and the other idea is that you keep whatever food in the food box you need and then you give away whatever you don't need. So that also gets food out to the communities where we live since we don't all live essentially where we are. And that can mean you give it to a neighbor who might need something, to family, or to a charity, or um, you know, an emergency food provision provider. So we'll hope you sign up for that. There's, there's details of how to do that within the Connecting Community Group. We're not posting that big in public, um, but it's in the Connecting Community Group. So you can join that if you haven't already. 
I won't talk much more at you. There's there's a bunch of things that are going on uh, in the next couple of weeks. A week from today, on Sunday, we're having the Jewish feminist theologian scholar Amy Jill Levine, and you've probably heard me quote her a bunch of times if you've heard me speak before. Um, and she's going to be speaking to us about the, the Passion Week and particularly putting um, next week's Palm Sunday, putting that in historical context. And then amazingly, she's going to be joining us live on Zoom afterwards for a live Q&A all the way from the US. So I'm really excited about that and I hope you can join us. And if you've got um, people who are interested in history, it'll be really exciting to invite them along because it'll be, it'll be interesting and you can get some questions answered. Um, then the following week is Easter, Easter week. And on Good Friday, we're going to be having a Good Friday gathering, um, just music and um, just some sharing together. Um, you can look out for details of that. And on Easter Sunday, there'll be a little time of connection in the morning at 9 o'clock if you'd like to join in with that. And then our 4 p.m. service will be live, um, live on Zoom. <laughs> uh, so we we'll hope that you can join in for that. Let me finish with the blessing that we share every week. May we live fully, may we love wastefully, and may we have the courage to be all that God has created us to be. I'll see you on Zoom at 515.